The Heinemann Podcast presents a new six-week series. Of all the tools available to the classroom teacher to mitigate anxiety and relieve depression in students, writing is a powerful one. Over 200 research studies since the late 80s have reported that expressive writing especially can improve people's physical and emotional health. So how does writing do this? And what can I do as a classroom teacher to position my students to take this verbal medicine, as author Barry Lane calls it? Join me, Liz Prather, on the Heinemann Podcast each week starting April 4th as we learn about the healing power of writing. It's in that moment that I get the energy, right? It's in the the moment that a child says, a young man, sorry, says, you know, this was it. And and I've never been much of a reader and this book, like, and he's just glowing. And I think that we need more moments with kids that make us light up inside. Hi, this is Edie. Welcome to The Dispatch, a Heinemann podcast series. Over the next several weeks, we'll hear from Heinemann thought leaders as they reflect on the work they do in schools across the country and discuss, from their perspective, the most pressing issues in education today. Today, we'll hear from longtime collaborators Penny Kittle and Kelly Gallagher. Hi. 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 Hello. Thanks for being here today. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. You too. So nice to see you in person. So I'd like to start here. The two of you have been longtime thought partners, collaborators. What are the pressing issues you're thinking about in education right now, individually, together? And Penny, if you could start us off. So many things, so many things. Um, Probably one thing that's pressing for me is how tired teachers are. And in spaces that I get to be with people, I hear more than anything that it not only didn't get better when COVID ended, but it got harder. So these constant conversations about needing energy drive me to think about what gives me energy. And I just finished a round of book clubs in my classroom and a student who gave me that shy grin says, Miss Kittle, I really liked this book. It was Dear Martin by Nick Stone. And it's in that moment that I get the energy, right? It's in the, the moment that a child says, a young man, sorry, says, you know, this was it. And, and I've never been much of a reader. And this book, like, and he's just glowing. And I think that we need more moments with kids that make us light up inside. Like if you stand back from the work, you see like there's strategies and there's, there's these big things. But when you're sitting side by side with a kid, it's really about that kid and their energy to do the hard work of reading, writing, thinking in this complex world. That just makes me excited to go back and try again. Yeah. And so with some of that fatigue and burnout, do you think teachers aren't getting enough of this time with students in a day? Or what do you make the connection for me a little bit? Yeah, the the pressure is cranked up in schools everywhere Mm. to make gains faster, which means teachers are pressured to do more with less time. And the sitting side by side with a kid is a thing that people will cut. Like, I don't have time for reading conferences or writing conferences because I've got to keep moving towards. And that pressure means that you then miss those, 
you know, the moment when a kid told me that his dream is to be a police officer. Mm -hmm. And I see him differently every time I sit beside him now because I understand what he's really, really wants. And I think that it's not just greeting kids as they come in the door. It's really knowing them as readers, writers, and thinkers, as we always say. You know, hearing you talk about, you know, the pressures and, and all the things that teachers have to teach reminds me of that old Marzano study in which he studied the standards. And I think this was when Common Core came out. And he said, you know, to adequately teach the K-12 standards at a level in which kids will get them, you'd have to change K-12 to K-22. And so I think teachers feel that pressure daily. And listening to you talk about your book club experience reminds me also of the book club experience that I've been working with in Anaheim. And you and I are going to talk about at NCTE mm -hmm. tomorrow. And entering that classroom, I see one group of kids who are really, really engaged with a book. And then I see another group of kids who are very, very disengaged with the book. And, you know, digging into that disengagement a little bit, one of the things that I found very disheartening was because Penny and I have talked for years about how the magic of book clubs, like the choice, giving kids good books to read, mm -hmm. how just vital that is. Well, and I've been instrumental in Anaheim in getting book clubs go up and going in, yeah. in numerous schools. Well, it turns out these 12th grade students walk in the door with a negative attitude about book clubs because teachers have taken those book clubs and drowned them in worksheets and essays and and have done the exact same kind of practices that have made kids initially dislike core works as well. And that is directly connected to the pressure on teachers, right? They're doing that because everyone's saying you've got to check their comprehension. You can't just let kids read. There has to be a measure. We have to have a worksheet. We have to have. And so that is this continually defeatist place. It's interesting because I was with a group of teachers last week and I was telling them about this book club and the teacher, Robin Turner, friend and colleague of ours, has decided because he, he was asked, you know, what is the end product? Okay. When the book club is over, what, what is the thing the kids are going to produce? And he said nothing. And the, this group of teachers, he, he said, I, I just want them to enjoy the reading experience. And these teachers couldn't fathom it doesn't have to have this massive project attached to it. And no, it doesn't. And Penny and I talked about this a little bit earlier this week. When does that identity happen? When a kid says, I am not a reader. When does that solidify, right? Because the 12th graders I was working with, it was a long time ago that that had kicked in. And, and I think when we wrote 180 Days together, we were seeing ninth graders who hadn't read in years. And so the book clubs was our most effective tool in getting kids up and reading again. I mean, there were other tools, offering time to read, and offering choice, independent reading. But the book club was very, very powerful back then. So I was a little disheartened to see this one group. The other, the other reason I think they were disconnected is they lacked the prior knowledge and background to read it. The group that was super engaged were reading a book called We Are Not From Here, which is an immigration story. And many of the students reading the book have their own family immigration stories in Southern mm -hmm. California, and they connected with it. The other book uh, was too far away, I think, from their prior knowledge and background for them to really uh, make that connection. And there were other reasons why. It was a difficult text for them to read. So as you've been talking about those identities of students, you're both thinking that solidifies really early for a student. 
Mm, I would say it is continually built. Yeah. The identity when they're very small is different than the identity as Mm -hmm. a teenager, as a reader. And so if we assume that once they know how to read, they're going to read Mm -hmm. without continually working on, what do you love to read now? Like I read The Lord of the Rings in middle school. That was not what I wanted to read in high school or in college. And we have to continually build it. And the things that Kelly mentioned, you know, time to read in class and and does everything have to have a product are pretty essential. It's different. Yeah. Right. Teachers we've been working with have said that in this digital age, a lot of kids have really gotten off the reading train. Reading books, which of course has a very deeper and rich reward and benefits than than click and go reading, right? But I and I think it's uh, I think it's the phones. I think it's a lot of the digital distractions the kids are having. Mm-hmm. Most of the kids get to high school do not like to read, and I think some of that. You know, I think every one of those kids had a tipping point. I, th- I agree with Penny. It's accumulative. And for some kids, it starts, you know, when they're drilled and killed with phonics, when they don't, that particular child doesn't need phonics. And, you know, when you have a one-size-fits-all program for beginning readers, like Penny's granddaughter was already reading before she got to kindergarten. Does she, does she need a phonics program? And so I think it starts very early, but I think the tipping point's at different ages for different kids. So I'd like to pivot to your own reading identities. What, what are you reading right now? And you can think about that broadly, uh, who, who you might be following, who you're reading, what's on your bookshelf. It's interesting. I've kind of taken, a of, of late, a nonfiction turn. Mm-hmm. The last few books I've read are nonfiction. One, which I found really fascinating, was called The Age-Proof Brain. Uh, I have a history of dementia in, in my family, and so I took particular interest in that. But it's really about how to how to maintain a healthy brain and sharp brain. And I wrote his name down because I knew I would forget it. Yeah. Uh, his name is uh, Mark Milstein. He's a doctor. Uh, it was really, really good. Uh, Professionally, uh, the last book I read that really interested me was a book called Short Changed, mm-hmm. How Advanced Placement Cheats Students. Oh, interesting. It's a criticism of AP, and particularly it's a criticism of sort of the mechanical reading and writing Mm-hmm. The very narrow kind of reading and writing and why that's not good for kids. And as Penny has often mentioned in, in workshops, you know, that a lot of colleges are giving students uh, AP credit, but they're not giving them freshman comp credit because they don't value the kind of writing that AP values. So it's very, very uh, interesting read. Her name is Annie Abrams. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I, I can't leave without talking about the latest uh, baseball book which is called Backup Catcher, and it is one of the richest, deepest books about baseball. It's easy to find a good book about baseball. It's hard to find a good book that's really amazingly written about baseball. Uh, So I want to get Jonathan Iggs, um, excuse me, I had the wrong name there, Tim Brown's book. Uh, So Backup Catcher. On a major league roster, the backup catcher is like the last roster spot. So there's this there's this subset of baseball players who kind of drift between the majors and minors their entire career, oh. and the dedication behind it. If you love baseball, I know it sounds kind of like a niche book, but it's really really good. What about you, my friend? Wow. So a few things to add to my reading list. As usual, yeah. whenever I sit beside I Kelly, he's got some interesting takes. So I always have a book of poetry going because I read poetry almost every morning. And mm-hmm. Padraig Otuama, who's part of the On Being podcast series, um, he does this yeah. incredible series of podcasts 
has 50 poems that change your world that I bought probably two years ago and have made my way so slowly through it. An absolute rock your world kind of thing because there'll be a poem and then about a three-page essay from him, who is a poet, mm-hmm. about what's happening in that poem. I've never learned oh. so much about mm. poetry, let alone how mm. many pages I've turned over that I've brought into my room and said, let's look at this poem. Um, so beautiful book. The um, professional side, I have to say Tom Newkirk's newest book oh, on yeah. the roots of democracy that are in literacy practices that have always been important. And he makes such an important case, which Tom always does, for if you have to look at, as you mentioned, you know, these voluminous standards and say what's really important, he names eight things, right? Mm. And that's, to me, so valuable. So I've been turning to that a lot, returning to that. Mm. And then I read so much fiction. And thanks to Kelly, I got (laughs) on to this detective series, The Lincoln Uh Lawyer, uh, Michael Connolly. (laughs) Resurrection Walk just came out and it it will be finished in like the next half hour because Uh, I am almost done. Um, And I never thought- You read most of it on the plane, Oh, no. I read it at night. (laughs) Like when I can't sleep in the middle of the night, I read. And when Kelly, he promoted it for quite a while before I ever went, I was like, I don't like detective stories. I don't like, and then I read Small Mercies, Dennis LaHaye. Oh, yeah, I mean, really we good. are in a book club together. And <laughs> I think that it's interesting the way Tom Lake, which is our book choice, this mm-hmm. um, Ann Patchett's Tom Lake is our yeah. choice, how I had read it. So I reread it for the book club and how much richer that rereading mm-hmm. experience is and how... Often I went back to, oh, I remember why I love this book so much, and now I see so much more. Mm -hmm. And two of my Book Love Foundation board members are Asian. We have an Asian literature club Mm. with another woman, and we only read Asian American literature and read this incredible book by Jane Wong, um, Meet Me in Atlantic City, and the writing craft in that book. You cannot, Mm. you absolutely cannot not highlight things or stop and say, how did she just do that? And so I think there's just such a range of things that make me interested in reading. You know, your first answer, have you seen the book, A Hundred Poems That Make Grown Men Cry? (laughs) I've heard that title. Did you read it? I think the first one- Wait, wait, wait. Did you read it? I did. Did you cry? I was a little disappointed because I only cried like (laughs) twice. You wanted to cry more. (laughs) I only cried like, and I don't know if that's a reflection on me or or whether I'm- no. But seriously, it, it, I think it spun off of a, a book called A Hundred Poems That Make Grown Women Cry. Oh. And then that was the follow-up. But uh, I just, there were some really cool poems in there, but I, I was a little disappointed because they were all kind of like old poems. Did you read oh. Why Fathers Cry at Night, Kwame's memoir that's based on that poem? No. <gasps> you got to read that. Because I know you teared up when he read that out loud at NCT. I remember you were that. sitting remember side by that. side yeah, when yeah. he read the poem, yeah. and now it's a whole memoir, and it's brilliant. Okay, enough about me tearing up. What's the next question? <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. It's I've so written down a gazillion <laughs> book recommendations here, so thank you. But yes, we can. So yeah, my last question for the two of you, um, when you look across the spectrum of education, you think about your experiences right now. Um, what gives you hope? And Penny, you could lead us off on that one. Oh, it's those beautiful human beings who walk in my classroom every day. I have to, and my husband says, I say this every year, but I'm like, oh, I just love these kids this year. They're incredible. And, And I'll start telling stories about them individually and just what young people have overcome 
-hmm. And if you think about it, there's not a kid that hasn't been impacted, deeply impacted by COVID and the shutdown and the disconnection from school. You know, a girl told me in class how she was a really strong student until she was sent home and on Zoom and she started turning her camera off and playing video games. And she, she didn't even understand how easily it had transferred to there's no reason to really care about school. And this kind of they've been dropped now into my first year course for freshmen in college experience of bringing them back to reading and writing. Yeah. I just love when I say, turn and tell somebody what you were writing about and the room explodes with talk. And I watch kids just reveal a little bit about who they are and where they come from and always have hope in that will to make sense of their own experiences. Mm that we get to be a witness to. Teaching is just truly the most joyful and hopeful of professions. I would first say what Penny said. (laughs) (laughs) And strangely, in a time where this is causing a lot of consternation with a lot of teachers, I think we're on the precipice of a whole new era Mm. that's centered around AI Yep. And all I don't think we even know what an ELA classroom is going to look like five or 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm hopeful that that will be harnessed in a way. I think there's so many possibilities. Mm. You know, I think I think the standard cliche answer is well it'll do the thinking for my kids. I don't I don't see it that way. I see it as a as a, something that's going to open up worlds of possibility that we cannot even imagine sitting here. Can you give one like example of what you're thinking about? Like, what do you see that you think is so exciting about AI? Well, I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, I'm writing a book, and I didn't mean this to be, you know, a self-plug, but I have found AI to be way more helpful to me than Google when I'm asking specific questions in education. Mm-hmm. And it takes me right to places where I would have never found on my own Mm-hmm. that I click and now I'm reading something that's really rich that I hadn't thought about five minutes ago. So that would be one example of it. Um, I, but I, I, And I don't know how to answer the question because I don't know where it's going, but I think there's going to be some sort of mix of you know, digital and art. And I, I just think the traditional term paper is circling the drain. As it should be. Yeah. I think um, the reason I asked was I had a friend send me this series of photographs she made with an AI app that you can use, you do selfies, and then you can turn yourself into a warrior. They were gorgeous and really interesting. And for me, inspiring as a writer, I'd never thought about imagining myself. And now all of a sudden, I could be a warrior. And what would that be like? And who would I be? And so I think there are ways that AI is going to transfer into these interesting experiments with kids. Mm -hmm. But I do, I'm deeply concerned about the stealing of author's work that is all over AI to learn to write like, you know, Ann Patchett or Jackie Woodson. And that is, um, I'm not sure how to deal with all Mm -hmm. of that as we look at that, because my students are very aware of all of it. And yet, how do we use it for good? I don't know. Yeah, I think, well, I don't know. I feel like there's a little bit of a synergy between the two answers you just gave, like Penny talking about your students constantly making sense of their world. And I think it's in the hands of those students. And I mean, I think that that's where the the hope that it will be this positive thing comes in, you know? I would end with this compliment. Penny, you have been a warrior 
<laughs> 40 years. And I mean that sincerely. Between yeah. your Book Love Foundation, <laughs> That's funny. between everything you've done for kids and fighting the status quo, you've been a warrior. You can need to find another personality because you've already covered that one. <laughs> <laughs> Same could be said of you, Kelly. Hmm. Well, I, thank you. I was fishing for that. Yes. <laughs> well, you already plugged your book, so I didn't think no, I, I didn't do anything else. I didn't say a title, did I? <laughs> well, I think that is a beautiful place to end. So thank you both for thank your time. You. Thank you yeah. for having us. Thanks for tuning in today. For a full transcript and to learn more, please visit blog.heinemann.com. Mm-hmm.